It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Avergan. This week, I tracked down the coach of the U.S. Math Olympiad team. I'm not sure what the difference between Olympiad and Olympics is. Olympiad, I think, is just generally a competition that happens every four years, and I think if I say Olympics too much, we'll probably get sued. But anyway, the Math Olympiad is an international competition featuring hundreds of high school-age kids competing for gold. Po Shen Lo was a member of the team 20 years ago, and now he's coaching the team, alongside his day job as a professor of mathematics at Carnegie Mellon. And you'll hear this in the interview, but I really like his approach to coaching in general. He cares much more about training the kids to think and perform, not just do rote math. Anyway, here he is talking math, coaching, STEM education, and lots more. Po Shen Lo, welcome to 538. Welcome to What's the Point? Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. So I don't want to bury the lead here or anything. Um, you guys won, right? Yes, it's really incredible. The United States team has won the International Math Olympiad for the second time in a row. Uh, these are amazing students. So what does the win mean, um, I guess, like historically? Right? You said only for the second time in a row, but it had been a while before then that the U.S. had won, right? Right. So I was emphasizing that it was the second time in a row that the U.S. won. Uh, the last time the U.S. won was, in fact, in 1994. There was uh, 21 years before the last win. Although I should say, I mean, uh, we've had wonderful coaches uh, in, the, in the time between. And it's not that the United States was doing poorly. In fact, the United States was consistently second or third uh, in the years leading up to this win in 2015. So this kind of gets to, I think one of the main kind of bigger questions that arises from this, and that is, you know, how do you think about the fact that the United States, which I assume you expected to win for all those years, and you probably expected the last two, does it does it indicate anything about the fact that the United States was not winning, or is it just luck of the draw that they happen to come in second or third? It's an interesting question about should the United States be first, second, or third. Um, on five th in the context of 538, I think that you guys often think about data, statistics, and the sorts, of, uh, the sorts of conclusions that you can draw from this. And in fact, the country that was generally winning was China, with a population which is four times as large as the United States. And the format of this competition is such that six people represent each country. So actually, if you think about just the raw numbers, if a country with four times the population is able to choose its top six people, one would actually naturally expect that if all, th if all other things were equal, that China would always win or would consistently win with a very high probability. The fact that the U.S. was able to win with a one-quarter the size population is then actually something interesting. So that's a very 538 answer, and that's a very rational answer that a lot of our listeners will like. But, I mean, you know as well as I do that there is this kind of larger conversation about the U.S. lagging, especially to China, in STEM education and so forth. And I think people probably pointed to events like this and said, look, see, we're losing in the math Olympiad. What's your reaction to that kind of conversation? Right. So I think that I and many other mathematicians are always very interested in doing everything we can to boost the level of mathematics throughout uh, throughout the country and the world. Now, uh, when we have results here from, say, the, the top end of the spectrum, that certainly shows that the top end of the spectrum in the United States is world-class, uh, the, the, the top compared to any other country as well. Um, 
at the same time, though, there's, of course, the question about the average. And this is something which is yeah. always a work in progress. And we, right now, in the Math Olympiads, are working very hard on trying to raise the raise the profile of the high end in a similar way to how the athletic Olympics raise the profile of achieving to great, uh, to great degree in swimming, say, to encourage more and more people to just enter the sport and, and, and then try to do well in the sport. In fact, a lot of my philosophy to this is actually inspired by the fact that basketball is a, is a sport that many, many people in, in the United States and around the world are quite good at. And many people are inspired by watching basketball greats and then choose to spend significant, amount, significant amounts of their time practicing their basketball shots so that ultimately they become strong. I think that mathematics is similar to sports in the sense that if you do more practice, you actually get significantly better. And the big question then becomes, how do we convince people that doing that practice in mathematics is a fun, fruitful, exciting thing to do? I think that's one role that things like this International Math Olympiad help to fulfill by showing there is something to, to reach for, which is way, way out there, just like how you might try to get the medal record in the, uh, in the Athletic Olympics. I mean, but tease that dynamic out a little bit more because you're saying that it's really about someone who's, you know, I don't know, in third grade now or fourth grade now being inspired by seeing someone winning at the Math Olympiad in the same way that they would be inspired by a top-level athlete, or is there more kind of like a policy prescription that the United States wants to compete on this national level and that has to trickle back towards better funding in schools and kind of these large-scale changes. I mean, is it really about that, like, individual inspiration? Is that enough to, to change the average, as you put it? Sure. So I actually do think that the, the question of how do we balance this uh, individual inspiration and policy decisions, this is a very interesting one. Um, I can tell from my own history, I, I actually grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, and when I was uh, a uh, in middle school, I actually read, I, I heard about the United States win and the International Math Olympiad in 1994. And that was around the same year that I heard a number of other stories which were circulated in the national newspapers about academic excellence. And I remember thinking at that time, this is really neat. Academics is being, uh, is, is exciting. It's somehow academic ex achievement is as exciting maybe as, uh, as the sporting events that we always read about in the, in the newspaper. I mean, before that point, I didn't realize there was an Olympic-type event for mathematics. I thought that it was only for swimming. But so, so in my particular case, I think that knowing that there was this to strive for was very influential for me to try to strive towards it, probably similar to any other kid out there who is trying to become the next Steph Curry. The other part you asked is whether or not more should be invested. So I actually think that uh, the teachers in our schools are actually heroes. They're trying to do the most that they can. Uh, but with a limited amount of resources, you're really only able to have, say, one teacher to 30 students. And I think this is actually, this, this, this numerical statistic is actually what makes their job very difficult. And it's, it's, uh, it's admirable that we're able to get this far uh, with, 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 with the system that we're working in. Now, with regard to what can be done, I mean, definitely, I think that if more is invested in education, I think this helps. Because ultimately, if you think about it, I guess the way I approach the problem is that if one is trying to boost the level of mathematics, one should maybe take a two-pronged approach. And on one prong, increase the interest in mathematics so that more people think that math and science and all of these other academic pursuits are really interesting to do. And the second prong would be to provide ways for anyone who decides that that's what they want to do to be able to go flying as far as they can, regardless of their zip code or wherever they grow up. Right. And then what about the uh, maybe the third prong, which is just 
people who don't want to be in the math Olympics, but people who need math in their lives and um, you know are going to pursue other careers, but having a strong math background will make them better. How does the work that you're doing and how does your team kind of trickle into helping that that group. You bet. So that's also interesting because I agree. I agree. Not everyone in the world wants to become, say, Steph Curry or a math Olympiad champion. But I will admit to not wanting either of those. Yes. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. And that's good. Or else the world wouldn't be sufficiently diverse. But uh, with, with regard to the other aspects of why math is interesting, useful, profitable for you in your life, I think that having a win in the International Math Olympiad is actually extremely valuable because it puts this mathematics into a national spotlight again for further discussion. In fact, in some sense, I think that the more often math is in discussion, the more often we can tease out the reasons that people see for doing math. And I'll actually say, I think that the math is super useful for everyone because it actually gives everyone a framework for logical thinking. In fact, I often say that mathematics is thinking. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly was not very good at math, but I, even then when I was in high school, recognized that it was teaching me how to think in a certain way, and I may not need those specific skills. Uh, I do want to actually kind of get back to that a little bit with regards to, to these kids, but let's talk about your, your team. Um, what does the actual training regiment look like? I mean, if you're there day in and day out... Sure. What are you doing? So um, I should say these are all people who generally love mathematics, and so there's a lot of I mathematics so. in the program. Uh, the way that the program looks is that people go to their first class at 8.30 a.m., which means that some of them may have woken up not that long before, uh, quickly grabbed breakfast. And then uh, they, work, they, they work on mathematics in a bunch of classes from 8.30 until about noon. We break for lunch, and then math continues again in the afternoon from about 1.15 until somewhere between either 3 or 5 every day. And then there's some, another break where people may do things like play ultimate frisbee, which is a very popular sport for uh, math students for some reason. Uh, and then after that, we may have some informal optional seminars uh, led by people who are coaches now working in things that aren't actually just math olympiad. But uh, these informal seminars will talk about the, the stories of how the people, these people who used to be involved in math olympiads are now, I guess, using those skills in their present-day work. And then the evening will be fairly open. So if you can see, there's a fair amount of math in the program. But actually, the way that these classes look is often that the students are, are thinking, very actively engaged, uh, where they're not just sitting in a lecture, but a, a topic or an idea or a problem has come up, and people are working at their own speed to try to internalize the concepts. And you did it. You were an Olympian. Yes, yes. I, I, was, uh, I was on one of these teams back in 1999. It was uh, not a superstar team, actually. That was because <laughs> I was on it. Uh, yeah, right. Humble as always. Um, so for our listeners who don't uh, do math day to day or, or maybe haven't done math for a long time, like put the, the kind of math that is being judged here in context. I mean, what level math is, is this? The kind of mathematics that goes into the International Math Olympiad is not the kind that you learn as a PhD student, and it's also not the kind of math that you do to prepare for the SAT. So, you see, the, the idea is that actually you can make very interesting questions for which the answers only require basic math, where basic means high school math, but coming up with the way to get the answers and the proofs is very complicated. 
an analogy I would give before I'll, I'll talk about an actual problem. Mm-hmm. Don't worry. But the analogy I want to give first is if you go to Legoland, you will see amazing sculptures and amazing creations made with Lego bricks. And I think that sometimes the ones that I'm the most fascinated by are the ones where, if you look really closely, the kind of Lego brick used is the standard rectangular brick. However, due to these great leaps of insight and creativity, you've been able to make something remarkable out of just the, the pure basic brick. So that's the same attitude that is taken with Math Olympiad problems. We don't want to have questions where we require a graduate degree in mathematics, or else that's basically just saying which student has taken that level of mathematics. Instead, the point of this is to go and isolate, identify, not isolate, identify who are the people who are able to assemble basic ideas in very, very sophisticated ways, the same way as how an attorney in in a courtroom is able to put together an extensive argument with things that every Everyone, every, every, every person in the general public can understand. So now, let me give an example of such a question. Um, this is one which I'm going to choose one from actually this year's International Math Olympiad. Okay. So it's going to be stated, it will sound sort of like Sudoku, but not. But you'll see what I mean. So suppose you have a grid of squares, nine by nine, uh, a nine by nine grid of squares, so there are 81 squares. It turns out it's actually possible to put the letters I, M, and O in those squares. So you'll be putting in 81 letters, one in each square, such that every row has an equal number of I's, M's, and O's. So every row has three I's, three M's, three O's. Uh, Every column also has three I's, three M's, and three O's. And also every diagonal has an equal number of I's, M's, O's. Hang on a second. That's a little bit funny. What do I mean by diagonal? So if I have this 9 by 9 grid, many people would think of a diagonal as, for example, the one that really goes from the top left corner to the bottom right. And indeed, that's a good diagonal. That one needs to have an equal number of I's, M's, and O's. There's also a diagonal right above that. If you think about uh, the, mm-hmm. the squares that are all directly one square above that, you'll get a diagonal which has only eight squares. Well, that's not possible then. You can't have eight squares and an equal number of I's, M's, and O's. So we don't require that that one has equal numbers of I's, M's, and O's. But if you take the next diagonal up, seven squares, can't promise anything. But the next one up is six squares. And on that six-square diagonal, now you insist there has to be an equal number of I's, M's, and O's. And the same also holds for the other diagonals, such as the ones going from bottom left to top right. So what I'm saying is that for a 9 by 9 grid, it is possible to put I's, M's, and O's in a way that really balances the grid equally. So uh, I'm not going to try and solve that on the sure. show, um, but uh, maybe our listeners can and they can uh, email me in um, a photo or whatever. But, um, but you know, you, you mentioned how, like, answering a question like that is similar to the way a lawyer would create an argument, and it's not really about the sort of specific skills, uh, if you want to put it that way, of of higher level mathematics or whatever. It's about the thinking. But are you kind of implying that you could take a great lawyer and they could answer these questions even if they don't have math skills because it's really about logic and and that kind of thinking? Sure. So actually what I should add first is I should say that this question that I told you is actually not a question from the International Math Olympiad. I was just giving a, I was giving, I mean, it's not exactly what it was this year. And I was giving it in the way that's easiest to understand. The actual question from this year was to say, what sizes of grid is this possible in? So you need to actually now classify, is it possible for 10 by 10? Is it possible for 11 by 11? You need to answer all of them. At this point, it now starts to look like a a law-type argument because you're not just coming up with one arrangement. 
you're actually right. coming up with a, a logical proof of why it's possible to do these numbers and why it's not possible to do those numbers. And then now to answer your question about what would a, how would a lawyer do, actually, I, I'm not a professional here, but I have two friends from my undergrad who went on to, to go to law school, and when they were taking the LSAT, the LSAT, they were commenting mm -hmm. that a lot of the questions were uh, logical puzzle questions. And in fact, I think that actually if somebody with, uh, with a law background uh, were to get were to re-familiarize re themselves with the high school mathematics framework, they might actually find themselves quite good at this uh, because yeah. this is all about coming up with a creative argument to get from point A to point B. We'll get back to my conversation with Po Shenlo in a minute, but first, a word from this week's sponsor. What's the Point is brought to you by Helix Sleep. You're unique. You don't walk like everyone else, you don't talk like everyone else, and you don't sleep like everyone else. By the way, you also have much better podcast taste than everyone else. But why is your mattress then one size fits all? At helixsleep.com slash 538, you can answer a few simple questions about your sleep habits, your body type, and any other preferences. It's actually kind of a fun process to go through and a form to fill out. And then right in front of you while you wait, they create a 3D model of your body matched to your ergonomic preferences. The result, you get a custom mattress on feel, support, temperature regulation, all sorts of metrics. In the end, it adds up to the most comfortable mattress you've ever slept on. Once you've ordered, your mattress arrives at your door in about a week and shipping is completely free. It arrives in this octagonal box, by the way. I've always thought octagonal is the best shape for a box. Right now, go to helixsleep.com slash 538, 538, and get $50 off your order. Create a 3D model of yourself, get 50 bucks off. That's helixsleep.com slash 538, helixsleep.com slash 538. Okay, back to the show. I read that one of your innovations as coach was bringing in people from the rest of the world, other parts of the world, to train in the U.S. Is that right? Right. And I, I'll say that, actually, I was inspired by work that other people had done before. In fact, my experience when I was on the team in 1999 was that our team was brought to train with the Romanians in Romania, mm -hmm. because the national coach of the United States at that time was Titu Andrescu, uh, a person who had grown up in Romania. So he had a good close connection there. And that caused me to, to have a... It was very impactful for me. I thought it was really interesting to meet uh, our compatriots from other countries, not in a competitive atmosphere, but collaborative, actually. Are there differences in the way that different countries approach mathematical thinking like this? Because I, I imagine a lot of people think of math as fairly standardized and universal. Uh, so what do you actually learn from another country's mathematicians? When you learn from another country's mathematicians, you definitely learn things in the same sense that you learn things from meeting another country's X. Meeting somebody from another country automatically broadens your worldview. And that's, I think, one of the goals I had for the United States students that were coming to this program, because uh, especially in the next century, which they're going to be growing up in and having impact in, they are living in an increasingly global globalized environment. And so I thought it would be very good and healthy for people to start thinking of the world as something much bigger than just the United States of America. But, it, but, it, but are you saying in a mathematical sense you're also learning about a different culture? In both I mean, would, a, would a Romanian approach the problem you just gave us differently than 
an American would? Actually, you, you might indeed. So you, you, the idea is that you, you definitely gain from diversity, period. And that's why we generally like diversity in any situation yeah. that we're in. And now different people do actually approach different questions in different ways. For example, and I, I, I don't want to overgeneralize, so I'm not even going to put country labels on this. Sure. But some people sometimes approach certain questions with a very computational approach, which is... Uh, where, where they know it's going to work and they're just going to do whatever it takes to, to beat out the answer. And there are some other types of people who want to find the most elegant way to see why it's true. So there are some people who are satisfied with having solved the question just because they've solved it, no matter how much work was, no matter how, how messy the solution was. And there are some people who are looking for that uh, insight for why this is true, and that might be a more risky approach because it might take longer to find that insightful way, but then somehow you're very satisfied with it at the end. So you've done a very good job convincing me that this was much more about cultural exchange and setting people up for 20 years down the line and being good citizens of the world. But then it was a competition eventually, right? And so, I mean, what did it, what did it look like when you went into the competition and tried to set yourselves up to do well? And did you scout the competition? Were there leaks about their strategies? Or, I mean, how did you, how did you approach the actual competition part of this? So we actually did not, uh, we did not make any effort to try to get any leaks from anyone else's uh, training styles because actually we have a very distinctive style of our own, which involves even teaching things in the program, which go beyond the high school mathematics. So now, if you remember, I previously said that the International yeah. Math Olympiad only goes on high school mathematics. And so a traditional approach might be to make sure that you really cover that space very well. But actually what we would do is we'd actually have people who are no longer coaching high school mathematics. They're PhD students somewhere or professors somewhere. And they'll actually talk about what they're doing, uh, talk about things that are closer to what they're doing now. And so that doesn't necessarily directly translate into doing well in the International Math Olympiad. However, it helps to provide a bigger mathematical framework and culture for looking at problems. And actually, it turns out, after the fact, we find out, it turns out that it actually gives this greater context and insight, which sometimes also helps you solve the problem. But so these are, but these are, these are what we wanted to do. So we, as I said, we didn't approach this competition as something where we're going to do everything we can to try to make sure we maximize that we win, because we want to instead help the students who, who we touch to get this comprehensive understanding of how the field looks. Now, when we actually go to the competition, though, um, it is true, we, we do take everything seriously. So, so when, when people are, when our, when our team and I and the other coaches are in the context of the actual competition, Life is intense. I mean, and this is something, this is a talk I had with the students even before we went into the competition. I explained to them somehow this philosophy of life that um, your success is not based on how much effort you put out. Your success is somehow based on how much effort you put out combined with the timing. There are certain times in, in, in your life where if you put in more effort, you get more bang for your buck or more bang for your effort, so to speak. And uh, the challenge is always to recognize what that timeline looks like. And when you see that there are particularly impactful times, you know, take it really seriously. Go, go, go 110%. And that extra 110% is actually relevant. I mean, if you think about how, say, a very, very little kid plays soccer. Oftentimes what the coach will say is put in more energy, you know, to just go harder. And in fact, mm -hmm. the whole point of coaching a sport is to learn how to drive yourself to pull out that extra 10% and you discover you have it. Then you pull out another extra 10% discover you have it. And so when you're in the context of a competition, even though we've been training general mathematics and general frameworks to, to, to help boost people's performance long term, there's this other part, which is just called, um, can you fully engage your brain during the period of that competition? 
And our students, I think, did that very well. Because if you actually look at the scores at the end, um, those sorts of scores, differences, uh, an extra 10% would have made a huge impact. Sure. I've done a bunch of coaching myself in sports, but, you know, I've known what you're talking about is mental toughness. Yes. You know, the ability to not just have the skills and perform, but perform in context and under pressure. Um, and obviously that is when you're expected to perform. And so setting people up to be able to do that has very little to do with a skill set. It has more to do with a mentality like you're describing. Um as you were watching the kids uh, go about it, and did it feel weird to kind of have like your your fate in the hands of a bunch of uh, a bunch of these kids? Were there ever moments where you didn't know what the answer was, or you knew what the answer was, and you could tell that one of your your kids didn't? I think I'm a bit. Uh, I'm already used to operating in a way where my fate is in the hands of others. So um, <laughs> even even as uh, in my in my in my job as a college professor here, I also coach another math team, and so um, in general, I'm used to trying to do everything I can, and then uh, and, and just seeing what happens. But that's also why the approach I always take is not to focus on the win. Like with every, every, every coaching type thing that I work on, I'm actually focusing on the impact on the student. And so at that point, that reduces the pressure because I don't feel like uh, my life is, my, my success is going to be based on how they do tomorrow. Instead, how successful a person is is not based on one day. It's actually based on the cumulative set of experiences in their life. And so I'm able to, I guess, uh, not, 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 not be so impacted by the moment. I want to ask you about diversity on your team. I know that um, less than 10 women made it into the final round, though you had made efforts to invite more to training camp. How do you think about both ethnic and gender diversity um, in in this world and, and kind of what are your efforts to, to improve that? Sure. So I personally think that diversity is extremely important because as I commented before, you need to see the different ideas in order to come up with new ideas. Uh, a monoculture is generally not very innovative. So uh, when we choose people for these programs, we actually do it on an anonymous basis. And so whatever comes out at the end is, is whatever comes out at the end. Uh, well, that said, we do recognize the need to increase the pipeline uh, in, in, in diversity. And the first thing that we decided to uh, approach in this direction was the gender balance. Because there was a particular uh, inroad that we could use here. You see, because these questions that I'm talking about are not the types of questions you typically see in, uh, in standardized tests. Like the one I just told you, you'd never see a standardized test question like what I told you. And so actually, it's entirely possible that there are many people who might not qualify into the training program because they hadn't, uh, under normal circumstances, because they hadn't had that experience with the standard type of questions. But with another month of training uh, with, uh, with, with these uh, more general mathematical techniques would possibly be very strong. And so this is actually what we did. It's, be it's because the type of question changes between what happens in normal high school and what people encounter at the National Math Olympiad training program. 
And so we specifically brought in um, some additional women so that they would be able to experience this level of training uh, on these things that they might not have seen in high school. And actually what we found out is that even if we brought in women who had been below the normal cutoff, actually at the end of the program, their performance was in the middle of the pack. And so this actually validates this hypothesis that if we just look at people based on their general performance on, on things which are close to what they're doing in high school, that may not necessarily correlate with their performance on abstract reasoning and uh, coming up with proofs. I want to start to wrap up here, but one thing I learned about you is that you um, occasionally contribute uh, or, or solve the Riddler, which is a column that my colleague Ali Rader does here at 538, and he insisted, or he asked that I ask you about the Riddler, um, which I'm sure some of what's the point listeners do as well so um i don't know do you do you you probably can actually solve them i usually read the first like two two sentences and then just get exasperated and close my computer so i think that the fact that you run a column like that is a great thing for mathematics and problem solving um in in in, in the world in greater society so i think that Actually, it's, it's wonderful that there's a greater prevalence of these things happening now. I mean, the Riddler is doing it. Uh, New York Times is doing one. Wall Street Journal is doing one. Mm -hmm. And it's nice to see that a puzzle is not only the crossword puzzle. I have nothing against crossword puzzles. I think those are genius, too. But I think that by having a column like the Riddler, you're actually really engaging people to think about much more challenging types of mathematical questions than what they're used to seeing growing up. And again, that's, that's again where I see the value of this. It's just like why, uh, why these exams and the system built by the MAA is useful. It's that when you, give, when you give questions which go beyond what people are usually used to, then they stretch. And the more often that you can stretch, the more talent you're going to develop. But how do you do? Do you actually, can you actually solve them? I think it depends. It depends on the week. and also <laughs> depends on the time involved. So the, yeah. these, things are, these things are quite serious questions where oftentimes you may even want to use a computer to assist your work. And I actually think that's a beautiful, I think that's a beautiful aspect to tie in to show that mathematics is not just something you do with pen and paper, but ultimately, even, especially when you're doing things uh, in, in more of the real world, the computer becomes a more powerful calculator, so to speak, that you can use to solve even more complicated questions. Well, Ollie will be very glad to hear that answer. And... Um... Poshenlo, thanks a lot for, for doing this. Uh, congratulations, and I really appreciate you talking to us. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. What's the Point's editor is Chadwick Matlin. Tony Chow and Jorge Estrada are in the control room, and Lucina Malesio helped produce this episode. Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, host of the Song Exploder podcast and the West Wing Weekly podcast. There's a link to download the theme to this podcast on our website. My name is Jody Avergan. You can find me on Twitter or email podcasts at 538.com with any ideas or comments about the show. You can subscribe to What's the Point in iTunes, the Google Play Store, the new ESPN app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And wherever you subscribe, leave a rating and a review. It really does help others discover the show. Or just tell someone about the show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. Listener.